Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, Executive Director of the ABI. Today we welcome the keynote speaker from our recently concluded Winter Leadership Conference, Amity Schles, to visit with us about the state of the economy as we end 2009. The past year has been tumultuous, beginning with the financial industry bailout, the government takeover of semi-public entities like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, not to mention the takeover of formerly public bellwethers like GM, the enactment of a massive stimulus package, a free-falling housing market, record budget deficits, bankruptcies up over 30%, and double-digit unemployment. In a recent survey, nearly half of the American people say they feel less financially secure today than a year ago. Nearly 60% believe the stimulus had no effect or is hurting the economy. And their pessimism grows about the willingness and ability of government to reduce the staggering debt. Despite brave talk of a recovery by official Washington, for many Americans, it's the 1930s all over again, a time of sustained economic hardship despite the aggressive status actions of a new administration. Our guest knows the story well as the author of the 2007 bestseller, The Forgotten Man, The New History of the Great Depression. The book supplies a fresh appraisal of what the New Deal did and did not accomplish. With a fact-filled analysis livened by vivid personal narratives of the key players, she demonstrates that while the New Deal did not alone bring about a real economic recovery, it did invent modern American politics, the systematic and unending creation of interest groups dependent on government benefits. This makes the book's central theme essential reading today. The question of the forgotten man, the person who must pay for the well-intentioned ideas of central planners, is as crucial today as it was in the Depression. Namely, how much in the name of benefits to the many may the government impinge on the individual? Our guest has some ideas on this. In addition to the book, she's a senior fellow in economic history at the Council on Foreign Relations, as well as a syndicated columnist and former member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board. A Yale graduate, she also teaches at NYU's Stern Graduate Business School. Welcome, Amity Schles, to ABI Podcasts. Thank you. Thanks uh, also for being uh, so generous uh, with your time uh, with our members uh, at the Winter Leadership Conference and for your terrific uh, presentation. Uh, Time Magazine just named Fed Chairman Bernanke its Person of the Year for his management of the financial markets crisis. Uh, He, too, is known as a scholar of the Great Depression, the author of a popular book called Essays on the Great Depression, whose knowledge of the period presumably helped him uh, in the financial crisis. Does he have a different understanding than you of the lessons uh, of the Depression? And if so, how would you explain the different interpretation? Well, thank you. Chairman Bernanke is a professor. Um, He did some of the most important work on the Great Depression. And What he studied was the effect of deflation. And he saw in a deflationary dynamic that once it got started, it was hard to stop. and did more damage than anyone estimated in his view. So he was like Milton Friedman 
he sees uh, the Depression as a deflation story. And therefore, he is committed to avoiding deflation. And that is what his monetary policy has reflected. He pours money out because a little inflation isn't as bad as a little deflation in his view. And maybe a little inflation is worth the risk because we could eventually get big deflation. That's the Bernanke position. And he's been pretty consistent on that. And he might be right. But in The Forgotten Man, when I looked at the period, I saw that monetary was part of the story, but not all. And the discretionary aspect of monetary policy was destructive. So when um, Hoover and Roosevelt came in, there was one set of problems which had to do with not enough money. Clearly, there was not enough money. Um, at the beginning of the 1930s, people actually made money in their towns. They made squip, like monopoly money, and traded mm -hmm. it because they couldn't get their hands on real money. And we talk about this in The Forgotten Man. Um, right. Some of them made money with the picture of FDR on it. They, they right. mimeographed it or, or used the equivalent technology of the period to, to and traded with it. It was wonderful. Anyway, clearly there wasn't enough money. Um, the Hoover administration didn't get that. Roosevelt didn't get it, but he came around to it. Um, and he supplied more money. That's good. However, the fashion in which he did it was quite arbitrary. He would say, today I feel like creating more money, or today less. Um, if he went off the gold standard, and then he actually, in the fall of 1933, uh, tried to adjust the economy personally himself by setting the gold price himself in the morning after he had his egg and before he had his cigarette. Just like that. And the market did not respond well because while they might have agreed that there wasn't enough money, certainly farmers believe that the discretionary aspect freaked them out. It's up to someone to decide today what the dollar is worth against gold. He literally did make that decision. And, and his advisor, Henry Morgenthau, said, if anyone knew how we set the gold price, they would be frightened. And they were. So what the parallel today for that is, that it's all up to Chairman Bernanke is in itself a negative. Our Fed law is in itself a negative because it's too discretionary. Markets can't predict what we're going to do about monetary policy. So that second issue, the discretion, is the problem. And one could argue here, and I would, that we should have um, a more rules-based system like Europe. The dollar has to do with inflation. That's it. Um, or something closer to a standard, not the gold standard, but something like it. But when it's up to the Fed and I, the Fed chairman, whether it's Chairman Bernanke or Chairman Greenspan, know what a bubble is after the fact and will then adjust, that's not um, good for markets. They don't like it, and it eventually will threaten the dollar. One uh, area I think where um, Bernanke's writings, I think, might uh, coincide with your own findings uh, in the book is that I've I've read where he's acknowledged that the um, New Deal program, the, the main program, the NIRA, actually slowed what would otherwise have been the regular pace of recovery by, among other things, its wage and price controls. Is that uh, the kind of finding that you think is consistent with, with your own work? Yes, absolutely. What Chairman Bernanke did look a little bit at, at the labor price um, and issues like that. Um, but he's known mostly for the, the monetary story. The monetary uh, Yeah. In my book, what I found doing the research is that 
regulation was also a negative, and so were labor-related um, projects, such as the National Recovery Administration created by the NIRA, as you say. Um, that was a, a big law. It governed the industrial economy. It uh, organized business uh, to to write codes for it, their sectors, which is sort of strange, a little bit like Italian fascism. And the approval came from the White House of these codes. And these codes advantaged the larger players against the smaller. That's sort of a, some, uh, a situation we have today with the banks. Um, and uh, they, one thing they did was push up wages, uh, partly on the theory that if there were higher wages, well, people would have more money to shop. We say that today. And then that would bring, bring recovery. Um, you would strengthen demand. Well, when you look at the period, as some economists have been doing lately, you have to wonder whether those higher wages actually slowed recovery because they were too expensive for firms. And you see that, first of all, with the NRA law, this law, and then later with our great union law, which was passed in 1935, the Wagner Act. Right. Wages were actually high in some sectors in the Great Depression. Uh, and we can see that perhaps that generated unemployment. Nice work if you can get it. Those who got the union jobs or the special jobs were all right. They were feeling pretty good. But a lot of people didn't get those jobs. It, it also um, brings to mind another truism we, we've heard our parents utter. It was all right if you had a job. That's the story from the Great Depression. It was all right if you had a job. So there was this division created by new labor law and regulation in the 30s um, between job-havers and job-have-not people, and it was a bitter division. The, uh, the president and the administration, uh, I think, are clearly in awe of a lot of the central planning aspects of the New Deal. The president frequently refers to the bold experimentation of, of FDR, for example. Uh, after this first year, what parallels have you been able to detect uh, between the administrations from your work in the book about the aggressive actions taken by the Roosevelt administration parallel to some of the things that are going on today? Well, We've one both thing been very interventionist in the economy, obviously. Right. Well, one thing that's parallel is that you have a progressive agenda. Maybe the Democratic Party has, or the, in, in that period also, the Republican Party had a progressive agenda. They wanted government to run utilities because they thought the private sector was too corrupt. They wanted social insurance. They wanted a pension for seniors, something like Social Security. But these ideas got no traction in the 20s because the 20s were too prosperous. Nonetheless, they were quite well formulated. People were talking about them. They were doing experiments in the states involving these ideas. Many of the things FDR would later do, um, he first tried out in New York State. Uh, or they were tried out, for example, in the case of the utilities and their regulation in the Midwest. So the plan was there. It was ready. It was waiting for the occasion, the Katrina, uh, to be activated on the federal level. The occasion came that Katrina was the market crash and then the terrible bank failures and contractions of the early 30s. And then um, the agenda was wheeled out. In order to solve this economy, we need Social Security for seniors or we need a new labor law. That's very much parallel to what we have seen in the past year where uh, Rahm Emanuel uttered this um, now famous phrase, famous for its honesty, where he said right. something to the effect that 
never waste a crisis. A crisis right. is a terrible thing to waste. Use it to, what, push forward something that you think is important but is probably unrelated to the nature of the crisis. So we see a healthcareization of um, a mortgage banking crisis uh, and, and a leverage crisis this year. Is that productive? Probably not. In the past year, we should have done our financial reform first and then health care. But because um, lawmakers in the White House knew that if they didn't act soon, they would lose the political capital to, um, to put through a very controversial reform, they reversed the order. Uh, that, that hasn't been good for the economy and the quality of the recovery. So uh, keeping on the theme of uh, a crisis and perhaps uh, the uh, ability of the government at times to even exploit a crisis, to, to what extent is the real virtue in the New Deal uh, viewed today as not so much about the specific economic policies? In your book, you point out that the policies weren't even consistent you know, from, from year to year. Um, but rather, what was consistent was the growth of the government, the state, as the kind of control agent. Once the government occupies a field formerly run by the private sector, in your book, Utilities, for example, uh, it either won't ever give up control or will do so only on its own terms. To what extent is that pattern repeating? Well, very, very much so. I mean, you, you, you want, a lot of this is about temperament. We know there are two kinds of economic temperament. Uh, one kind is the deal-making temperament. I like to do a deal, and that deal is a success. I consider my day successful when I've closed a deal. Um, that's, that's a people-related um, temperament. And then there's the price temperament. Some people want to know what is the price. And I'll, I'll act. I'll act economically. I'll become a player, or I won't depending on prices, they care less about relationships and deals. The New Deal was a deal, was deal business. Let's deal, shake hands, um, sign up with identified interest groups, compromise in the room. And you see the Obama administration very much working in the same way. By the way, Secretary Paulson under President Bush was also that way from Goldman Sachs. He's a deal maker. He's the, one of the best deal makers in the world. He made deals with China. He made deals with, you know, auto companies. So that whole temperament, it's not great for government because while it's political compromise, it, it all depends on whether you know the person who's making the deal and went to college with him or law school with him or your parents knew him or you live in the same city as, and it tends to be very coastally oriented, so it shuts out the Midwest. Or um, That's a big commonality with the New Deal that we have now, and it's not necessarily productive. More productive would be to say, Let's allow the prices to be expressed, even if they're ugly, and then the market will trade, and any man or woman can trade. It won't matter where you went to school or who you know or what club you're in. Right, right. Um, Does that answer your question? Insiders game. Uh, at, the, uh, at the recent job summit, the president expressed uh, some frustration with the business community over the reluctance to hire. You, we hear about the one uh, piece of the recovery that's lagging, of course, and that is uh, on the job front. In 1937, uh, as you pointed out in, in, in your book, the uh, FDR called on the private sector to, to, to step up to, to do their job uh, to help uh, fuel 
recovery, but the response uh, was all but uh, non-existent. In 1939, nearly six years uh, after nearly six years of, of, new, of the New Deal, unemployment was still nearly 21%. Um, now, obviously, we're not at anywhere near that, um, at least officially. But my question is, do you think that, uh, again, learning lessons uh, from the New Deal era, do you think people uh, in the administration uh, sufficiently appreciate the disincentives to investment and job creation and, and why the business community uh, might be holding back over uncertainty about what's around the corner in terms of new laws, regulations, et cetera? You know, again, this is a question of temperament. If you've had a payroll and you've known what it is that makes you want to add a name or drop a name from your list, layoff, hire, then you have a certain sensitivity to the cost of regulation. So a new rule or even just the potential for a new rule, a new mandate, such as the health care legislation overhanging um, the economy right now, the potential for it, that's crucial to these decisions of rehiring. Don't think that President Roosevelt had hired enough before he became, and fired enough or laid off enough before he became president, so he just wasn't aware of what makes business do what it does. And his reaction was to be petulant with business, to be cross, mm. to bully it. You, you didn't hire you bad business. He even wrote a tax, the undistributed profits tax, which right. is about forcing business to disgorge cash, either through wages or dividends. And uh, he didn't like that they were holding on. But from their point of view, they were saying, let's wait and see. I, I'm concerned about what legislation unknown, the unknown unknowns might come. I need more reserves than formerly. Companies and banks both said that. And that caused the depression within the depression, which right. is those extra years, 37, 38. President Obama is similar. Um, we talked about him being a deal maker before. He, he doesn't understand what's going on in the mind of business, so he's angry. What, they're holding on to money? People tell me spending needs to happen. That's what I hear from my economic advisors. Bad businesses, let's scold them. So you get a president who becomes chief social worker. That's what I wrote about in my Bloomberg column this week, too. So Obama, President Obama's like chief social worker, as FDR was on some days. What, you, you, you don't know your, your, your immoral business, and that's, that's impugning their motives, which is uh, in, in itself offensive. You know, you can criticize someone's behavior, but when you get at their motives uh, and make personal comments, that's, that's not right. So, and it's because, I, I think in the case of Roosevelt and probably also President Obama, that they hadn't really thought enough about what it's like to be a business and to understand the business wasn't being mean and selfish. Rather, it was being cautious in order to preserve those employees that it had. To, to assure their future. So the businesses would argue they're being they're being humane when they don't hire um, because they want to keep the jobs of the one they have. They would love to hire more, but they don't feel it's safe enough to do that. Mm-hmm. The uh, frustration uh, obviously uh, built up quite a bit in FDR uh, after five or six years, um, you know, with the business community. Um, I don't know if we're quite at that level of, of frustration yet, but clearly in the job summit, uh, you saw a lot of that uh, bubbling up, uh, sort of exhorting business. You know, well, we've 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 cleared the way. We've solved the banking crisis. We've flooded the market in the Bernanke uh, 
particular of of putting money in the system. Uh, now we want we want banks to lend it. We want uh, that lending to go toward uh, new business uh, investment, uh, which is to say uh, investment in people and, and jobs. And when that doesn't happen immediately, you know they're clearly getting frustrated. Uh, oh yeah, I mean, and that's that's very uh, much reminiscent of thirty-seven, thirty-eight. Um, in um, his book, Freedom from Fear, Professor Kennedy notes that one night at dinner, Roosevelt was President Roosevelt was talking to his wife Eleanor, and he said, "You know why? Why did private investors, private businessmen, not make new investments? How irritating was that? Why did they lack confidence in the economy?" And as Professor Kennedy relates, Eleanor replied, Franklin, they're afraid of you. That's why. Much like now. Much like now. Yeah. The, uh, I love this uh, quote. It's from the classical uh, liberal free market economist uh, Hayek, who said of the democratic statesman who sets out to plan economic life that he will soon be confronted with the alternative of either assuming dictatorial powers or abandoning his plans. Um, do, you, uh, do you think they have any Hayek books over at the National Economic Council? Oh, I'm sure they do, but maybe they're, maybe they're buried underneath. Hayek is a hard sell in the United States. I know you're thinking of Hayek, and I'm thinking of Hayek all the time. Hayek is the philosopher of the hour. What did he say? He said that the incremental increases of government are not benign, and it, that such increases build and build, and, and eventually there comes a tipping point when we go over into a socialist state. And for a long time, the thing about Hayek, um, who, who wrote this material in the 40s, having experienced such a thing in Europe himself, he was from Vienna, um, he right. was worried about the UK going the same way he was in the UK. And for a long time, the thing about Hayek was he was wrong because, you know, guess what? The U.S. did not go into socialism even though we'd had the New Deal. Even the U.K. didn't go into socialism, though they socialized so much more subsequent to World War II, starting with national health, of course, and then the industries. Actually, they went the other way, and Hayek lived to meet Margaret Thatcher and to see her do the beginnings of some reversals, right? Mm -hmm. But... But Hayek said, over time, it can still happen. And when we see um, us moving incrementally, and incremental is, is the adjective towards the nationalization of healthcare, we say, wow, you were a prophet, Friedrich, because that could happen and it will be a tipping point for the, for the U.S. economy. Another reason Hayek is not popular, and you touched on this, is he's not really a big Democrat, lowercase d. He was suspicious of democracy because he said you get into this game with your constituents where they just demand more and more and your job as a politician becomes serving them. And because it's a democracy, their voice matters. He was uh, probably more of a Republican, lowercase r, representative government by considered people who thought about what the consequences could be sometimes um, if, you, if you gave constituents everything they demanded. So... You know, uh, a man who's Austrian, whose name sounds foreign, who has a fun, he was Friedrich von Hayek, uh, and who's suspicious of democracy, is hardly an ideal hero for Americans. But the reality is Hayek was a prophet. <laughs> he, he understood what was happening here. He did come here and teach at the University of Chicago. 
very well and that the U.S. is always in danger of um, expanding government too much and the consequence will be less freedom, including, of course, eventually less democracy. Right, right. So, again, healthcare today, energy tomorrow, uh, you know, what's uh, around that, that corner from there, uh, creeping, as you as you say. Um, it, it creeping, toward, growing, yeah. Growing, right, whatever the right metaphor. Okay, so here's the... Here's the hundred thousand dollar question. So, what's your prediction for uh, next year and beyond uh, in terms of uh, in terms of the economy? What what do you see happening? Are the are the lessons that um, that you wrote about and that you discovered in your six year uh, study of the uh, of the New Deal and the like? Uh, any uh, applications to to what we're about to see, either good or bad? What do you what do you predict? Well, what happened in the 1930s, recoveries make a choice. They're like people. And in the 1930s, the recovery chose to stay away. So what we're going to have now, um, analogously, is a recovery that chooses to stay away or comes back more weakly than we would like, especially given the scale of the stimulus. Um, How will that be reflected? It will be reflected in the unemployment, which will stay high. We're having a Europeanization of the United States, and the result will be growth levels um, that don't match those to which the United States is accustomed. Our, you know, Americans believe in the entitlement of growth. We we're entitled to growth. We're not just entitled to Social Security, and we won't get the growth that we, that we had in the past, and that will surprise us. So that's one thing. Um, more specifically, I'm concerned about a double dip. I'm concerned about the prospect of inflation. It's not yet expressed in the economy very much, but it, it, it will be because there's too much money out there. And in addition, and this is subtle but important, if you have genuine growth, that takes up money, right? It uses money. Um, and if you have enough growth, you can stop up the extra cash all around because it's, doing, it's working to use for meaningful um, activity. But there's another kind of growth, which you could call junk growth, mm-hmm. um, often involving stimulus, where you're putting money somewhere, but it's not really very effective. And um, the, the example of that from our everyday life is when you go to the airport and you get to the security, and you're taking off your shoes, and you're looking right. at the people, and you're resenting that you're taking off your shoes. I hate this. Why did my life, quality of my life go down that I am here taking off my shoes on this business trip? And you see the people, and you feel vaguely hostile towards them. And then you want to be charitable, and you say, look, let's look on the bright side. At least this process gave someone a job. Yeah, job and you go, <laughs> gave someone a job. Come on, yeah. let's, be, let's be friendly. And you go through the whole process, and you're on the other side, and you're putting your shoes back on, and you look back at them, and then you say to yourself, but it's not a very good job, is it? Even for them. Right. That's what you get when you have stimulus spending. The, the, the uh, airport security is another purpose, okay. It can be a junky job because it's about security. It's about war. It's about terror. But uh, that kind of job is generally what stimulus spending creates. And you know what? It's very often not a very meaningful activity. And there is such a thing as high-quality growth and tacky growth. And what we've done through stimuli, and I would include the stimuli of the Bush administration too here, is generate a lot of tacky growth instead of a lot of high-quality growth. The private sector tends to, all things being equal, um, make for better growth. And we've shut them out a bit and focused too much on government. 
Well, a recovery that stays away is uh, probably not all bad for the bankruptcy business. So uh, <laughs> from our narrow uh, parochial uh, viewpoint, perhaps our members will continue to be busy in 2010 through 12. We'll see. Oh, absolutely. But the, I, I would add that when you have that uncertainty factor or the enormous discretion that tends to come with government expansion, so you'll have reforms including in your industry, that will be all about discretion from Washington, that will change the game in a way many players in your trade do not like because you have a rules-based system in bankruptcy law. So precedent matters a lot. Uh, and what we're doing now with the administration vis-a-vis debt is all about discretion, not precedent. All right. Well, uh, well put. Thank you, uh, Amity, for, uh, again, for being so generous with your time at our Winter uh, Leadership Conference and for making the time again today to, uh, to join us. Thanks very much. Oh, no, thank you for this opportunity. Well, um, our pleasure. Uh, that's our program for today. You can listen to or download more than 75 ABI podcasts with interesting guests by clicking on the link on our homepage, which is www.abi.org. Until next time, this is ABI Director Sam Giordano saying good day.